Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled in your presence. You are the holy and transcendent one, and yet you have called even us to yourself. You assured us of your love and grace and goodwill toward us, and we're happy to be in your presence. Lord, now we're ready to hear your word. Open our hearts to the truth of your words, that we may experience the warmth of the light of Christ in our hearts and grow by your spirit into his beautiful image. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Last summer, some friends and I wanted to go on a backpacking trip together, and we decided that we wanted to go to Packwood Lake. So none of us had been there at that time before, so we were excited to explore a new area of the mountains. Now, in the days leading up to the trip, one of my friends would send us pictures of Packwood Lake from the internet to kind of like hike us up. There were pictures of glassy water and snowy peaks in the distance and wildflowers. And every picture that I saw got me more and more excited. I would just scroll through these pictures and dream of getting to be there with my friends. So the trip happens and we're on the trail. And I won't forget when we finally emerged from the trees and the view of the lake opened up to us. We could see the snowy peaks in the distance. They were reflecting off the water like a perfect mirror. And of course, we're all hot and sweaty and tired from like carrying our campsites on our backs. But when we laid our eyes on the lake, it was a moment of bliss. The dream had become a reality. The air got cooler. We could smell the fresh water. I could hardly believe I was even still on earth. It was like I'd never seen a lake before in my life. But of course, I had seen lakes before. And in fact, I'd seen this lake before, right? I just told you about the internet pictures that my friends would send me before the trip. 
And everything that those pictures communicated to me about the lake were true. But they weren't the lake. In the words of St. Paul, what once had splendor has come to have no splendor at all because of the splendor that surpasses it. So those pictures had splendor, but the splendor of the lake itself utterly transcended it. I got to see the lake for myself. In our passage this morning, St. John is telling us that God's children will see God himself. The full vision and enjoyment of God awaits us in the glorified Christ. So God is like the lake. It's not enough for God that we merely know about him. No, it was God's intention from the beginning of time that we would see him himself, that we'd see him as he is and know him as he is, love him as he is, and that in seeing, we in turn would be seen and known and loved as we are, namely his beloved children. Theologians call this the beatific vision. It comes from the same Latin from which we get the term beatitude, which means blessed. Now in the beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's the end goal, the very purpose of the Christian life. We were created to see our God face to face. Now this desire to see God is knit deep in the fabric of our being. King David said, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And listen to these ancient words from Job. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Is this your desire too? Brothers and sisters, this fundamental desire will one day be fulfilled. The children of God will see God. The children of God will see God. Now these are the two promises that I want to look at in our passage. The first is that we are children of God. And the second is that we will see God. So first, we are children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. In a miracle of God's love, God made us his children by adoption. This means that he chose you and brought you into his family because he loves you. J.I. Packer considered our adoption by the Father to be the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Because it's one thing to be made right with the heavenly judge. Right, God could have justified us and forgiven us, forgiven our sins and just let us be on our way, but that isn't what God wanted. No, God's intention was also to adopt us into his family, to shower us with fatherly affection and care all the days of our life. So what does this mean for us? Well, what doesn't it mean? Being adopted means that we're loved as sons and daughters, 
not merely subjects or servants. In Jesus' parable of the lost sons, the younger son curses his father, abandons his family, and ends up destitute. And he comes back home only because he needs to survive, and he knows that his father will let him work for food. But instead of treating him like a servant, his dad runs to him and kisses him. He doesn't say, you have to work for me in order to make up for my property that you lost, and then you can be called a son again. No, rather he says, my son was lost, and now he's found. We are always sons and daughters, even when we wander. And no matter for how long or how far we wander, we are always welcomed back as family. It's like we have our father's house key and he never changes the lock. Being a child of the father also means that we have brothers and sisters in the church whom we are called to love. This is part of John's argument in verses four through 10. And I'm not gonna read them again, but in verse 10, he concludes, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. So for John, righteousness is all about love. And loving your brother is what it means to be a child of God. It's not that we're God's children because we're righteous, it's just the opposite. We're righteous because we're God's children. Therefore, John says that we must love our brothers and sisters. That is what we've been adopted for. Now, it might be worth it to pause here because there are some statements in verses 4 through 10 that are a little unsettling, right? I'm thinking especially of, about uh, verses 6 and 9, which says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And actually, a clear translation might just be simply sins. And no one who sins has either seen him or known him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So these verses seem to be unclear, because experience tells us that we sin. Does that mean that we don't abide in Jesus, or that we aren't born of God? Well, we know from chapter one of this same letter that everyone sins. John even says that if you say you don't sin, you're either lying or you're deceived. So what are we supposed to do with these verses? Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what John is getting at here or how he meant to reconcile this teaching with his other teachings. Because every scholar that I read seemed to have a slightly different idea. However, most scholars at least agree that John here is using exaggerated language to make a point. So it's kind of like this, I think. Imagine St. John is the coach of a kindergarten flag football team, and his kids in yellow jerseys, bless their hearts, keep running the ball to the blue end zone. Now he might call a huddle and say, no one on the yellow team runs the ball to the blue end zone. If you run the ball to the blue end zone, you are playing for the blue team. If you have a yellow jersey, you can't score in the blue end zone because you are on the yellow team. Now, Coach John isn't trying to get them to second guess whether they're actually on the yellow team or not. 
His point is that they should run the ball to the right end zone. And I think it helps to know that John is abundantly clear when he states why he wrote the letter in the first place. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing this so that you may not sin. And in 5.13, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you read these verses and your first thought is, oh no, I've been sinning in a particular way. I haven't sought forgiveness. I haven't sought reparation. I haven't sought to repent of this thing that is wholly opposed to who Jesus is. Then good. This is John's loving warning to you. He wrote this so that you may not sin. That is what is important for John. Now, if you read these verses and your first thought is, oh no, I'm not sure I'm actually born of God. Maybe the grace of God has passed over me. Maybe my sin has disqualified me from the saving love of Jesus. Now, if that is your first thought, then let this be an encouragement to your soul. John wrote this for you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice the promise in these verses. God's seed abides in you because he made you born again. So believe the one who said to you in your baptism, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. The waters of baptism are a sign of this reality and a seal of God's promise that in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's Galatians 3. So your baptism is like your yellow jersey. When Coach John is yelling at you because you're heading to the wrong end zone, just look down at your yellow jersey, say, oh yeah, and turn around. In other words, when you find yourself on a wrong path, remember your baptism. Remember your adoption by the Father and turn back to Jesus. And if you've never been baptized, or maybe you haven't given your life to Christ yet, God has a yellow jersey for you, so to speak. Repent of the ways that you've sinned against God and your neighbor, and believe that Jesus is Lord. There's nothing else that you have to do before God accepts you into his family. There's one more thing that I want to say about adoption. When a human family adopts a child, we know that there's not necessarily a biological relation between the mom and dad and the child. But something unique about the father's adoption of us is that we're actually born again into his family. We have a new nature. Verse 9 says that if you are born of God, God's seed or nature abides in you. And this is true of every Christian. We have a new nature, and that means we have a new future. Think of this new nature almost like a new bloodline, right? For example, a daughter will naturally grow up to look like her mom and probably act like her too, because it's in her nature. Similarly, God's children are growing up to be like God. So now the question is, what will we be like? And how will this happen? And this brings us to 
the second promise, that we will see God. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So what will God's children be like? We'll be like God. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we'll share in his essence, of course. God is the creator and we will always be creatures. We won't become infinite or self-existing, all-knowing, all-powerful, or everywhere present because these things belong to God alone. But we can see what God is like according to his glorified humanity in Christ. That is how we will be. We'll be imperishable, incorruptible, immortal in our heavenly new creation bodies. We'll be pure as Christ is pure. We'll be righteous as Christ is righteous and we'll be holy as God is holy. And how does this happen? It says we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we, God's beloved children, will see God. In fact, this is what we were made for. It's a profound promise and it's a profound mystery. Because how can we see God? After all, isn't God invisible? Well, these questions have been held in tension throughout the entire story of God's people. But we see that from the beginning, God has been progressively showing himself in greater degrees to humanity. On the one hand, scripture says that Moses asks God, show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. Scripture also says that Moses and the elders of Israel saw the God of Israel. Here in Exodus, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and they beheld God. Even in Genesis, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now fast forward to the days of John, because John says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side has made him known. It's like he's saying no one has seen God, at least not like we just did, because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He is in himself the beatific vision. Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And do you remember what Jesus said? Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So what does this mean for us today? Because after all, we didn't get to see Jesus on earth like Philip did. But Paul says that we live by faith and not by sight. And so the truth is that through faith in God's word and by his Holy Spirit, we have a real and spiritual vision of God. This is good news. 
At the beginning of our letter, John proclaims that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes and have looked upon and touched with our hands, we proclaim also to you. That means that the spiritual vision that we have right now of Christ is better than the glory that Moses saw from the cleft of the rock. It's even better than what Elijah saw on the mountain, and it might even be better than what John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, because now he's living in us by his Holy Spirit. So when we look to Christ in faith today, we become like him. So look at verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So in one sense, of course, Christ has already made us pure by the blood of his cross. But there's another sense in which we grow into this purity. We become like Christ when we contemplate him by faith. So what would it be like to look to Christ as we're sent out into our week? Well, there are two places that we go to see Christ. The first and foremost is his word. The Bible reveals Christ's character, his beauty and gentleness, his power and authority, his love and compassion. It reveals his promises that anchor our souls during the highs and lows of life. So we look to Christ during the week when we read scripture or otherwise when we recall the promises that we heard during worship. And the second place that we go to see Christ is in the world. Now we don't necessarily turn away from the world in order to look at Christ, but rather we look at the world with a heavenly perspective. This week you'll likely encounter some kind of difficulty, probably a lot of temptation, and maybe even despair or tragedy. A heavenly perspective reorients us towards the God who is just as much our help today as he is our hope for tomorrow. The heavenly perspective lends itself well to the practice of self-denial. Because in moments of lack or in moments of abundance, we're reminded that all earthly satisfaction pales in comparison to the incomprehensible enjoyment that we will have in seeing God. So we look at the world with a heavenly perspective. We also look through the world and see Christ's presence in all things, because we live in an enchanted universe. Every living thing and inanimate object reflects God's grandeur, especially people, especially people, because in them, we see God as the loving creator and the loving sustainer. So we look to them with the eyes of Christ and our love for them grows. And in the same way, the vision of God that we possess now by faith grows our love and changes how we live. Because Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. So it's in the very looking with the eyes of faith that we become like Jesus. And even still, brothers and sisters, if you can't imagine it, a greater sight awaits us. 
I've tried to balance the already and not yet so far, but this might be the biggest not yet of them all. The text says, we will see him as he is. No, not as he was. Paul saw the risen Christ in unapproachable light, and even he implied that the sight was dim compared to what he looks forward to. He said this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And whose face will we see? Is it just the face of Christ? Or is there some vision of God that lies beyond or even around Christ's humanity? Well, Paul said that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. Listen to this. Christ, as he is, is a transparent window into the essence of the Godhead. In that moment, when we see Christ as he is, there will be nothing left of God to see. There will only be eternity to explore and enjoy him more deeply in the new creation. Because when we see him as he is, it's not going to be a brief glance. No, it'll be a searching and loving gaze. The Bible talks about Christ's appearing as a wedding feast and a consummation. And if you'll allow me this illustration, when we see God as he is, it'll be as when a bride sees her groom as he is on the night of their wedding and the two become one flesh. The bare divinity of God will be unveiled and we'll become one with the Father even as Christ and the Father are one. This doesn't mean that we'll be absorbed into God like a drop in the ocean. This is a union of relationship. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. We get God. We don't just get something from God. We get God himself. When my backpacking party got to the lake last summer, it wasn't enough for us to just see the lake. Now, the view of the lake kept us motivated until we found a campsite, but once we were there, we immediately cast off our heavy packs, you know, flipped our shoes off, and ran out into the water. Of course, it was cold, but the sun was scorching, so the water was so pleasant, I almost didn't want to come up for air, except maybe to let out a deep sigh of contentment. I just wanted to float there in paradise forever. With God, I will be with him and in him forever. In Christ, I already am. The difference between God and that lake is that the lake didn't love me back. The lake's beauty didn't make me beautiful, but not so with God. God not only loves you, but he makes you lovely. He makes you beautiful. He makes you glorious from one degree to the next. See what love the Father has given to us. May we be a people that habitually looks to our God in the face of Christ, to whom be honor and glory and dominion forever. Amen. Let's pray.
Almighty God, we long to see you. We can't comprehend the love you gave us when you gave us your son. Lord, thank you for making us your children, for loving us as your children. May your love shape us and grow us into the fullness of the image of our brother, our husband, our friend, and our King, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.